to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Malcolm Gladwell has made a career of making us think twice by taking things we think we know are true and inviting us to reconsider them through the lens of fact and reason. He's a real force with not one but two popular podcasts. He's been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1996, and he's a top-selling author. His podcast, Revisionist History, applies Gladwell's think-again approach to events and ideas from history. And season four examines issues that range from the LSAT to the American Revolution. Let's take a quick listen to a clip from a part of Revisionist History that takes a look at the Tea Party. Let me spell it out for you. Underneath the lofty rhetoric of the patriots of New England was a criminal enterprise, a vast smuggling operation illicitly supplying the residents of the New World with their drug of choice, Buhi, that deliciously addictive tea varietal with a dark liquor and a deep leathery taste. The foundational myth of the American Republic is not righteous, freedom-loving citizens rising up against oppression. No, it's drug dealers defending their turf. Okay, I would love uh, to introduce our listeners to Malcolm Gladwell, who now joins us to talk about the fourth season of Revisionist History. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Good morning. Yes. All right. That clip we just played was from episode three of the new season in which you shatter some mythology about the Founding Fathers and the Boston Tea Party, which, of course, is the predicate for uh, the modern day uh, iteration of uh, the Tea Party. Tell us what you're talking about here. Oh, well, first of all, tongue is firmly planted in cheek. In cheek, yes, of course. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, I, th- I thought I would have, you know, I'm a Canadian. In fact, as I speak to you, I'm wearing a T-shirt that says Canada on it and has a big maple leaf. <laughs> and as a Canadian, I did not receive the same historical instruction about the War of Independence as you did. Um, so I thought I would have a little fun on July 4th. And we so we did a podcast which uh, took a look at the Boston Tea Party and focused initially on the tea, on the obsession of the, you know, why did they choose tea, tea as the thing as they were going to fight about? <laughs> right. so, so I found this hilarious guy who's a tea sommelier, who I just adore, named um, Tony Glubley. And he came to my house, and we drank lots of tea, and we drank the one that they threw into the harbor. And he talked about how obsessed uh, the colonists were with their tea. And there's no accident. They chose tea as the kind of symbol of their protest. But the reason they chose tea was that many of the, not all of them, but some of the founding fathers, or at least the ones in Boston, were tea smugglers. And so they got upset at the British after the Tea Act had the effect of lowering the price of tea in the New World. And that meant that it was destroying the market for smuggled tea, right? They they wanted the tea taxes to remain high so people would prefer cheap contraband tea. <laughs> so the whole, I mean, once you know that fact, it makes the whole thing quite hilarious. Um, so I did a little riff on what does it mean that our founding fathers are reformed criminals as opposed to uh, <laughs> shining examples. Of, 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 um, but it, it wasn't supposed to be, you know, it, the, some of my, some episodes of revisionist history are, you know, they might have a little lesson buried somewhere, but they're quite lighthearted. Others are dead serious, yeah. but this fell into the former category. <laughs> right. So, so the new season of the podcast starts with a two-part series 
that starts with you and your assistant taking the LSAT, and it yes. ends with you proposing a grand unified theory to fix all of higher ed yeah. in America. It's a pretty broad range of activity there. Um, yeah. <laughs> give us the SparkNotes version of what happened, uh, what you learned, and yeah. what your proposal is. Well, so my assistant Camille and I decided to have a contest to see who could score higher on the, on the LSAT. <laughs> I would point out that I'm 55, she's 24. So I came in with a massive disadvantage. She has literally 2x the brain cells that I do. Um, and then this caused me, the fact that we were having this contest made me think, oh, it would be really fun to kind of do an examination of the LSAT. And particularly, I was interested in this fact of why it's timed. Not just why it's timed, but why is it timed so kind of punitively that almost everyone who takes the LSAT runs out of time. And I wondered why Why would you devise a test for the legal profession where you're causing everyone to race? Right. Because it doesn't strike me as immediately obvious that most of the things you do in the legal profession involve racing so quickly through <laughs> things you don't have a chance to understand them. Right. My understanding of lawyers is actually the opposite, is that they take their time. So it was weird to me, right? So, so I took the test, and lo and behold, I ran out of time. So then I went to then Camille and I went to see the people who make the LSAT and said, "Why did you, why did you make us race? Like, what possible function did that did that serve?" And they, you know, gave some good answers and also some not so compelling answers. Um, but then it got me into this larger thing of, so what does the LSAT actually predict? And when I t I talk to these people who do kind of analytics for the legal profession, and they'll tell you that. You know, law school, the LSAT predicts to a mild extent your grades in first-year law school. Right. But it has to, seems to have almost no bearing whatsoever on your ability to be a lawyer, a good lawyer. It doesn't really tell you. Knowing someone's LSAT score is not a useful proxy for knowing whether they'll be a good lawyer or not. And that struck me as being very problematic because we've constructed this entire meritocratic system that starts with your score on the LSAT because that determines what law school you go to. And then what law school you go to largely determines what kind of job you get. And so if that chain is false, if in fact all that has nothing to do with the end product of how good a lawyer you are, then we need to fix the problem somehow. And this got me into this larger thing that I've been obsessed with for years, which is I don't understand why in America or anywhere in the world, people have to know where you went to school. Wouldn't we all be better off if we were if we were forbidden from disclosing that fact? From talking employers? about it? Yeah. Like, go to the school you want to go to. Go to a good school. Learn all you can. But it doesn't strike me as terribly useful to know, like, why does it matter if someone comes, if I, Camille's leaving me. I got to hire a new assistant. Why does it, the person, I'm going to get 10, 10 resumes. I'm going to learn that some of the people applying went to, you know, Yale. Some went to Michigan State. How does that help me? But, I, I mean, I think, isn't there something sort of, uh, well, uniquely American about that, right? I mean, that is about competition and and the idea that competition yields better results, which I think is is baked into a lot of the the expectations and and sort of cultural uh, assumptions that 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 but lie only, at the founding, right? Yeah, no, you're right. Except that the competition has to be relevant to the task that 
is being selected, <laughs> right? Right. And my question is, I don't understand why the competition on the SAT that helps you get into a particular school is irrelevant to me, the employer. Right now, you can say broadly it's relevant that I, I'm interested in people who went to college. I'm interested in people who completed college. I'm interested in people who were dedicated students in college. But it doesn't seem to me at all relevant whether the student went to Michigan State or Yale. In fact, I tell people when they apply for jobs with me, they have to. I do. I actually put this theory into practice. I make them black out the name of the institution they attended. Hmm. It's not helpful. So what makes? So this is a good example. So my assist. What do my assistants have to do to be good? Well, they have to be conscientious. They have to be uh, courteous. They need to deal with lots of people and be prompt and attentive and. They need to care about their job. They need to not be getting wasted the night before something important happens. I mean, I could give a whole long list. I, it's not clear to me at all that the person who went to Yale is better at those things than the person who went to Michigan State. Is it? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that makes that makes sense. I mean, it, it does, though. It does brush up against this very ingrained uh, idea that we have, I think, that uh, that Again, that competition is the way that we solve problems in America. Yeah. I would rather, you know, I, I would be more excited by um, the competition that I would, if we use, the competition I would like to use for um, who gets to be my assistant. What about like a 10K? They got to run a 10K. And the person with, <laughs> I mean, it strikes me as being, I don't know. About you, as relevant. It's about, as, think about it though. It might even be more relevant. If you can run a fast 10K, what does that mean? It means you are disciplined and conscientious enough to have trained on a, daily basis for an extended period of time, and you have enough kind of perseverance that you're willing to put up with some pain in the short term <laughs> to finish an arduous task. That is exactly what I'm interested in, someone who has the discipline to attack and finish arduous tasks. <laughs> Convince me why that's not a bad, <laughs> convince me why that's not a better way of choosing my assistant. <laughs> yeah. Well, so now this is uh, your new protocol, right for, right, for choosing who you work with. Uh, you know, one of the things I've always wondered is, Sort of how you come to these really uh, incisive questions that you ask about things that we all kind of take for granted. Uh, what's the yeah. process that you use to come up with the with these ideas? Well, it they usually not always they well no I was going to say I'll take that back. So what's coming next in the podcast are three episodes that are all loosely related to um, how to think like a Jesuit. Um, and the All idea right, now is you're that, getting very close to my heart. I was educated by Jesuits. Oh, you were. So, oh, yes. My respect for you has just <laughs> doubled, if if such a thing were possible. Uh, the because um, I, I I think now why did I get interested in that? I think I read something, or maybe I met a guy who was who was educated by the Jesuits and talked to me about what an extraordinary experience it was. Anyway, I got interested in what is particular about the way that Jesuits attack problems. Hmm. And then I started, and then I got, I thought, oh, this is actually super interesting. And more than super interesting, seems to me incredibly relevant to the kinds of problems that we wrestle with today. And so I thought, all right, let's just dive in. And I went to Rome and like met with a <laughs> Jesuit theologian. And, you know, and I, it started out as a kind of a lark, an excuse to go to Rome. And then it got actually really quite serious. And I realized there's something profoundly, and you can back me up on this if you want, there's something profoundly beautiful about the kind of Jesuit intellectual methodology. Oh, sure, sure. Um, really beautiful. And that has maybe been lost as we have 
uh, as religiosity has kind of ebbed um, in our uh, in our society. And so I just thought, once you're on that topic, you can go a million directions, right? And so I got, you know, there are three episodes that are uh, that are all devoted to using Jesuitical uh, reasoning to solve difficult problems. Um, hmm. And so that's a good, a good example um, of another show coming up is um, I decided I wanted to make the case for Pat Boone being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> and, and, you know, where did that come from? I don't Someone told me that Pat Boone wasn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I was like, what? Well, that's a problem that needs to be solved. Right? So, that's a, and that just struck me. as like, I mean, I was like, I'm all over that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Malcolm Gladwell, author, uh, journalist, and podcaster. Uh, We're talking about the new season of his podcast, Revisionist History, which sort of asks us to think again about events and ideas from history. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Call and uh, ask uh, whatever questions you might have of Malcolm Gladwell, or call and talk to us about uh, the podcast and this idea of reconsidering the things that we are certain uh, we're right about, uh, about our history or the present, and the idea of going back and uh, and thinking again. Uh, I want to play another clip from uh, the upcoming season. This is from an episode titled, Good Old Boys. And I said, these people are trying to destroy our business. They don't want to eat with us. They just want to create a problem. they got the television and radio and everyone with them. And I said, I'm going to give you $10 for each one of them you throw out in the next 30 seconds. Maddox's employees threw them out, but the protesters came back. This time, Maddox met them at the door, with the television cameras rolling and a crowd starting to gather. There's Maddox in front of the picric with his black suit and bald head, protesters shouting, cameras all around. He's in heaven. I'll use axe handles, I'll use guns, I'll use paint, I'll use my fists, I'll use my customers, I'll use my employees, I'll use anything at my disposal. This property belongs to me, my wife, and my children. It doesn't belong to anybody else. I'll throw out a white one or a black one or a red-headed one or a bald-headed one. It doesn't make any difference. Maddox gets called into court because the Civil Rights Act has been passed and what he's doing is illegal. He's given a choice, integrate or shut his doors and he decides to shut the picric. One of the most popular and successful restaurants in Atlanta, the business that he has spent his lifetime building that made him famous, and to every Southerner angry at the way the world is turning, he becomes a hero. He becomes a hero. Uh, that, that, uh, talk about how you came to want to tell yeah. this story, which is from the 1970s. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's all about Lester Maddox, governor of Georgia yes. from 67 to 71. Um, the last of the unrepentant, seg- not the last, an unrepentant segregist, segregationist. Um, maybe they're still around. Um, I was, oh, it was a long, complicated story how I got there. <laughs> um, Randy, the, the, the episode is all about Randy Newman's album, Good Old Boys, and how it was inspired by 
uh, Lester Maddox and his antics in the early 70s um, as he tried to defend his legacy as a segregationist. And I was just interested. I've always loved that album, Randy Newman's album. And um, the question, the broader question that is looked at in that episode is, um, what happens when you, should you sit down and talk to someone whose politics or views you find loathsome? Mm -hmm. And that's something that we're dealing with today all the time. In fact, my own magazine, The New Yorker, had a parallel controversy over the question of whether we should invite Steve Bannon to our festival, Hmm. our our literary festival. I was on the side that said yes. Um, Others said no. And I I just got – I was sort of fascinated by that controversy. Was I right? Were they right? You know, why – why – how do we decide who deserves a platform? And those issues were all kind of uh, previewed uh, 45 years ago um, in the case of Lester Maddox and a famous interview he gave on the Dick Cavett show in 1970, um, 1971. So that episode was sort of sparked by just my musing on that question of of do, are there rules we should follow when we decide who to talk to and who to give a give the stage to. And, and because history is... Uh, the trunk from which you sort of draw these these examples and these stories, uh, you, you get the the sort of built-in advantage of us not learning very much over time, right? That uh, <laughs> we kind of yeah. go in circles, and we have the same debates over and over again, just with different characters and uh, around slightly different issues. Yeah, yeah, it's useful. Are they, are they the same debates or? They're kind of variations, um, but it is true. It's, I think it is, you know, one of the premises, you're right, the, one of the premises of the show is there is much to be learned by just going back and looking at the last time mm-hmm. this happened. Um, and uh, because sometimes you learn you're, you haven't moved forward and sometimes actually you learn just how far forward you have moved. I don't know. It's, it's, it's both. In a, I'm not someone who's, I'm not a fate, I'm not a kind of, fatalist or a pessimist about um, history, I do think, in fact, sometimes we understate how remarkable um, the strides we've made have been, mm. um, particularly in the last... I mean, the thing that's amazing about Lester Maddox is and a 100% ardent segregationist was elected governor of Georgia in 1967. We can at least say that wouldn't happen today. <laughs> I mean, we hope not, right? Hope not. <laughs> I mean, you know, it would be... Uh, Certainly, an awful lot harder today than it would have been. It should. We have we have made, you know, today when someone makes racist comments, people call them out. Some people do, right? We're having that conversation right now about uh, the occupant of uh, of the White House. Yeah. (laughs) Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Call and uh, ask Malcolm Gladwell uh, questions about his work. Let's go to Janine in Livonia. Janine. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thank hey. you so much for having me. Sure. <clears throat> so my, um, it's really not a question; it's a comment. Okay. Uh, regarding um, Malcolm's comment about uh, knowing where the employee went to the university. Mm-hmm. So my comment is: I have a uh, master's in higher education and student affairs, and uh, I would disagree with what he said. I think it is very important to know. Where the student went, where the not the student, the um, employee went to which university? Because there are many universities, and each university has 
a specific mission, a specific focus. Hmm. So there are universities that are focused on research sure. and offer very specific kind of opportunities and other universities um, that are more focused on service to the community, for example. So depending on the job description that you have, it would be important to know what was the focus of the education of the person. And if the person got um, uh, chose to be engaged with those types of opportunities. Yeah. Uh, Janine, I think that's a really interesting point. I'm glad you called uh, and and made it. I'm not sure it necessarily negates the point that uh, Malcolm Gladwell is trying to make here, which is that perhaps we make too much of uh, the distinctions uh, in reputation, I, I guess, between between schools. Is that, what, uh, is that what you were trying to say, Malcolm? Well, I would say the caller actually makes a very good point. I, I would say that we're largely in agreement and what she's saying really is the, that it's important for any prospective employer to ask the right kinds of questions about the kind of experience the employee had in college. So were you engaged in the community while you were there? What kind of things captured your imagination? What sorts of courses did you take? What, so those are all really good questions, and I think you, those questions need to be front and center we need to we need to understand some we can understand something about someone's interests and character from a description of how they chose to spend those four crucial years i just think i'm optimistic that that can be done without uh revealing the name of the institution yeah um but there may be instances where there's no way around it um uh certainly you know uh, you know, there's every, you know, there's there's a couple of really sort of fascinating small schools in America with very, very, very distinctive missions. For example, there's a school, you know, St. John's, mm-hmm. that school where kids study in the, Maryland, yeah, in Maryland, where they study the great books. Or there's some very ser- small service oriented um, colleges in other parts of the country. I'm, I'm forgetting the name of one of them as a famous one. In those cases, actually, I kind of would love to know. That's interesting to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I don't mean this as a, I don't mean to be, um, a, uh, well, but I think a you're tyrant, a tyrant about this. pushing back against kind of the the, the, the sort of H bomb uh, dynamic, yes. right? I yes. went to Harvard, and I went to Harvard. That ends the conversation. That ends the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't want to hear that. Don't wear your Harvard T-shirt to my job interview. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so in our next segment, we're going to talk to a researcher about real ways to combat urban violence. And uh, I think it's sort of interesting that uh, uh, your, your book, The Tipping Point, um, mm-hmm. was, it was a, a real look at uh, urban violence and crime reduction. I wonder what you make of the conversation that's taking place now about the ways we fight crime uh, and how different it might be from uh, what we were looking at when you were writing Tipping Point. Yeah, yeah I mean, I wouldn't, I've been, I've said this many times, were I writing The Tipping Point today, would not write that same chapter about crime. Mm-hmm. I feel like we know an awful lot more. I know an awful lot more. I actually revisit in my new book, which is coming out in September, mm-hmm. called Talking to Strangers. I have I revisit some of those questions and talk about what I think a more sophisticated crime-fighting st- strategy looks like and what it means to have to fight crime strategically as opposed to... I think the many of the issues we have now with crime fighting are about applying um, principles and strategies that uh, uh, in too broad a manner, treating all populations and all neighborhoods the same. 
And uh, that's where you run into trouble. I think you need to be incredibly specific and targeted in how you use police power. And if you do that, I think you avoid many of the pitfalls. And there's some really fascinating research that I talk about in the book over the last 20 years, which has given us real direction about how to more thoughtfully um, uh, deploy law enforcement. Hmm. Okay, Malcolm Gladwell. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Real pleasure. And you can check out his podcast, Revisionist History, wherever you download podcasts. All right, up next, we're going to talk with senior research fellow at Harvard, a former Obama administration policymaker, about solutions to the problem of urban violence. Are we thinking about the right things or doing those things? Stay with us on Detroit Today.